0: All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome. Uh, for those of you that don't, that don't know me, uh, my name is Joe Pedafar. I'm the section chief for ENT. Um, just a few housekeeping things. Uh, I'd like to um, welcome our visitor today from Kosovo, Dr. Susanna Curlew. Uh And she's visiting from University of Pristina in Kosovo. She's the dean of the medical faculty and president of the country's Cancer Control Board. So, welcome. Uh, uh, Oh, there you are, great, (laughs) okay, awesome. Um, And then, uh, uh, I'd like to, uh, it's a great privilege to introduce uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Ravi Upaluri, uh, who will be giving us a talk on uh, neoadjuvant targeted immunotherapy and head and neck cancer surgical management. So, Ravi uh, was a a co-resident, he was a year ahead of me when I was at Wash U, he did his MD-PhD at University of Minnesota and then residency at Wash U and stayed on as faculty for about 16 years uh, doing head and neck surgery and was also NIH-funded uh, in cancer research and also cl- uh, novel clinical trials. Uh, he was uh, recruited to, to be the chief of surgical oncology, head and neck surgical oncology at uh, Dana-Farber um, and uh, um, made quite a showing there, and they said, well, you don't have enough on your plate, so we'll make you the division chief. Uh, Of otolaryngology at the Brigham and Women's as well. So he's taken on that role. He's the associate professor of otolaryngology at Harvard Medical School. Uh, So, and he's been there for just uh, like a couple of years now. Yeah, so he's got a wife and three kids who are still trying to figure out Boston, and I wish them good luck. Uh, So um, just a conflict of interest statement that has to be read. Uh, So Dr. Oboulou does have a financial interest. He's a consultant for Merck. Uh, Alan Hartford has reviewed, uh, he's the course director, and he's reviewed uh, this relationship, and uh, and he's uh, validated the content. Um, He will not be discussing any off-label or investigational use of a device or product and he has not received any uh, commercial payments uh, from any entity with respect to this activity. In fact, I haven't even paid him either, so uh, – and uh, we'll be Lunch, lunch. Oh, yeah, lunch. Yeah, okay. All right. So without further ado,
1: Robbie, thanks for coming. Thank you. Sir. really
0: appreciate you having you. Me.
1: Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Good afternoon. Can everybody hear me okay? Great, thanks. So, um, as Joe mentioned, I'll be talking today about our work in this area, uh, where we're trying to integrate the current sort of wave of um, oncology excitement in, um, <clears throat> in in the surgical management of head and neck cancer. So, what I'll talk about today is a few different things. But first, is here my disclosures and the uh, uh, requisite sort of uh, points that, are, that Dr. Paterfar already made. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Dr. Paterfar in particular. We're old friends, as he mentioned, and it's really. Um, exciting to have a, a, a cl- close friend and colleague so close by to Boston. So, thanks for inviting me again here. So, um, so <clears throat> for those of you who don't know, again, this will be a talk that covers some very specific things about head and neck surgery. So, I'll try to expand the spectrum there. All with some basic research stuff that we've done. So, um, uh, hopefully, some of this is not too over your head, and are also not um, uh, too basic for some of you. But I'm trying to give a, a more, more overview stuff. So, so. Overall, when we think about head and neck cancers, it's primarily squamous cell carcinomas. This is a, a malignancy of the epithelium of the yeah. head and neck, and it's, we really think about it in terms of different subsites in the head and neck. So uh, if you look at this sagittal view of the an- anatomy here, <clears throat> what you see is a oral cavities, uh, the tongue and the uh, uh, area within the mouth here. The oropharynx is really this, considered this segment here, where there's the tonsil and the base of tongue. And then you have the hypopharynx and larynx, which is down here. So these are really sort of three general segments. There's a nasopharynx, which is almost a different entity, which we're, I won't really talk about today. But the cancers that we're talking about are really located for patients in, these, in this sort of area. Um, <clears throat> Over the last decade, though, there's really been an evolution of under, our understanding of head and neck cancers. There's really two diseases in head and neck that we deal with nowadays. Uh, there's a sort of classical head and neck cancer, which is carcinogen-induced, so smoking and alcohol-related. alcohol, and, uh, alcohol, alcohol related. and this is still, uh, you'll see it in all head and neck sites. I mentioned the three sort of general areas, and it's, you still see it there. And it's still really the uh, predominant head and neck cancer worldwide. In fact, if you go to certain countries like India, it is the top cancer in males that you'll see because of the amount of smoking and drinking that goes on there. Um, <clears throat> we're definitely seeing uh, we're, it's treated with multimodality treatment, so surgery or uh, chemotherapy and radiation. And still with, the cha- with all these sort of aggressive approaches that we take, there's uh, still about a 40 to 50 percent five-year survival rate for these patients uh, with combination therapeutics. In the, in the Western countries, <coughs> we're definitely seeing a decreasing incidence because of the decreased tobacco and alcohol abuse but um, it's still a predominant um, uh, entity. Uh, in addition, it's a primary surgical uh, 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 entity, especially in the oral cavity, which we'll talk more about. There's a second sort of subgroup, which is uh, HP related which has really come up in the last decade or so, which we we're noticing from epidemiologic studies. And this is really located in that oropharyngeal tonsil or base of tongue region. And um, it's a younger, healthier, smoking, non-smoking population, and there are non-surgical or surgical options for these patients. And what's surprising and really not surprising is that these patients do really well in general. There's a very high survival rate, and with the AJCC-7 staging system, even stage 4 disease, the vast majority of these patients did really well. And that's probably a combination of things, the etiology, their healthier patient population, et cetera. And these data regarding the HPV and prognosis really came out in the, like I said, in the last decade or so. And here's one study, which is a seminal study came out in 2010, where they looked at a a clinical trial that had already been been completed on a large series of patients with oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma. And this study basically showed these curves, showing both whether it's for overall survival or progression-free survival, that patients with HPV-positive tumors had a significantly decreased reduction of uh, death uh, with their hazard ratios of 0.42 compared to HPV-negative disease. So just having this as a a defining factor in your tumor gave you a, a different prognosis. So the overall three-year local regional recurrence was less in these patients. And partitioning, although if you would smoked and you had HPV-positive disease, you still did worse. So this defining factor of 10 years of smoking also defined a different entity of, your, uh, of patients. So here's an example of a patient that I took care of at WashU uh, several years ago, which kind of illustrates what you could kind of get away with in this disease. So this patient had an oropharyngeal sclerosal carcinoma. So this is a tonsil. So again, oropharynx tonsil and has about a T2 lesion, about a 2 to 4 centimeter lesion. He had um, uh, excessive lymphadenopathy, so in his right neck here you see this large uh, lymph node. So he's clinically staged as a T2, N2B, HPV-positive, oropharyngeal disease. Uh, this is in 2011. We did upfront surgery on him, so I did a minimally invasive approach where we went through the mouth and were able to resect the tumor and also did a surgery on his neck and took out all these lymph nodes. He had 4 out of 10 lymph nodes positive in the neck, and he had ECE, so ECE is extra capsular extension, for those of you who don't know, which means a tumor is spilling out of the lymph node and is an aggressive prognostic feature in conventional head and neck cancer. Uh, this guy lived in the woods and you know ate mushrooms and kind of uh, was out there, so he refused adjuvant therapy. Typically, I'm sure you don't see any of these patients here, Joe, but, so. but anyways, he refused adjuvant therapy, so he, and he would have been recommended to get chemotherapy and radiation typically, based on all the studies the evidence that we had. But I saw him uh, right before I left St. Louis, five years after his surgery, and he's alive, doing well. If you had carcinogen-induced head and neck cancer, the other kind, HPV-negative kind, you'd be dead within a year with, if, if you refused chemotherapy and radiation. So this is a difference. It's, it's a different disease. In fact, this, this sort of uh, anecdotal evidence has really been supported by the idea that many people across the field are doing de-intensification trials. So here's a summary of a bunch of trials. So people are trying to de-intensify chemotherapy. They're de-intensifying radiation therapy or de-intensifying surgery? What can we get away with in these patients and still have good outcomes? Because I think we're over-treating these patients. And in particular, that young patient who's a non-smoker who presents a very advanced disease, giving them surgery or, or chemotherapy up front uh, is probably over-treatment. But, but we also want to make sure that we don't under-treat, obviously, because we are having very good survival rates. So <clears throat> it is fundamentally a different disease. And this study from Brian O'Sullivan and colleagues from JCO from a couple years ago really illustrates. So, this. this is the Princess Margaret cohort. So, this is also looking at oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinomas. They, took, they look at 573 patients with HP positive disease or 237 with HP negative disease. And you can see there's a huge difference in how these patients do. The hpv positive patients, even with stage four disease, do really well um, after uh, uh, over several years of, of treatment, whereas hpv negative disease, clearly has this sort of stratification with different uh, different staging systems, and the advanced disease does not, does not do well. So it's these patients that really have, uh, have piqued my interest, and fundamentally it is a genetically different disease also. This is data from the TCGA, the Cancer Genome Atlas, looking at the genomics of this disease, published in Nature a couple years ago. So here's the HPV negative cohort, and here's the H oh, sorry, yeah, negative co- Sorry, positive cohort and the negative cohort over here. They had more patients with... HPV-negative disease. And you don't, you don't need to look at the details of the types of uh, different, uh, different genetic lesions these patients have, but just can see from these red blocks here, it's fundamentally a different disease in terms of HPV-negative, sort of positive versus negative. So not only does it clinically behave differently, there's sort of a genetic basis for this. So <clears throat> going back then in terms, of, in terms of thinking about, so my focus has been HPV-negative disease. These are patients who don't do well, and what can we do better in those patients? So, going back to the 90s, this is the data that we had in terms of uh, what, 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 what we were treating patients with and what were the negative prognostic factors. So, uh, it was historically treated with surgery up front and post-operative radiation therapy. And despite doing that, patients had significant uh, relapse rates, whether it was local, distant mets, or overall survival, as I mentioned. And then there's a group of patients you can identify called high-risk patients who have even worse prognosis than these patients. So what does high-risk mean, and how is that addressed going forward? So this is back in the 90s. So at that point, what people did was they said there's these high-risk patients who don't do well. What can we do to intensify the treatment? As opposed to HPV-negative, positive disease, these patients need a treatment intensification in addition to surgery and post-op radiation. So the RTOG and EORTC large uh, comprehensive co- uh, uh, clinical trial entities, uh, designed two clinical trials. which were published in the New England Journal in 2004, So this should say 4, not 14, um, which is level one evidence for treatment intensification of these patients. They really showed that for these high-risk patients, if you added postoperative concurrent bolus cisplatin plus radiation after they got surgery, they they would do better. But despite that, so they would get surgery up front, they would get chemotherapy and radiation, they still had a significant risk of relapse within one year. So even though we were intensifying the treatment with chemotherapy, they were doing poorly. So what are these high-risk features we're talking about? So the EORTC and the RTOG had two different uh, 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 sort of circles of uh, uh, high-risk high risk features, and the Venn diagram overlap really highlights what we really focused on in our, our thinking about it. So if you did surgery on these patients and you got a positive margin, you didn't cut all the tumor out or microscopically left something behind, not on purpose, but it does happen, <clears throat> then you were high-risk. You got high-risk of it coming back. Or if you had this feature called ECE, which is the tumor spilling out of your lymph nodes, then you would be high risk to getting recurrent disease. So again, this is HPV negative disease with these features, you definitely were high risk and disease would come back. So here's the curves on these two trials. And what you see was there's this subtle increase in the r 2 g where you added combined therapy, you improved the survival a little bit. So, and same thing with the ERTC trial. Again, you improved a little bit. So overall, you can see, yes, it's level one evidence. Yes, it's a prospective randomized trial. But still, the differences were not that significant. And we're still, if you look back at the meta-analysis of these data, probably for every eight patients you treat with chemotherapy, one is being benefited by these. So we're still overtreating patients with this approach. Yet, this is still the current state-of-the-art and gold standard approach because of the level one evidence supporting this. So <clears throat> uh, this also shows that... So, this is the failure rates. So you look in the RTOG data or the RTC data, you can see that at one year, they, that's when you really see a significant amount of relapse events. Mm-hmm. Same thing here. If you draw a line at the one year time point, the majority of the relapse events in these poor risk patients happen in the one year. This is local disease, and the same curves show for distant disease. So within one year, you have a, about a 35 percent rate if you look at these trials of patients coming back with their with their um, cancers. So <clears throat> I'm a surgeon, and Dr. Paterfar is too, and so. What are the advances that we've, we, that we've accomplished there? Um, we'll talk about the uh, non-surgical advances in a second, but this is what I want to start out with. So we really have improved their functional outcomes. Despite our sort of you know, aggressive or whatever you want to call it approaches, we definitely have improved how patients do when we do surgery. From a resection standpoint, we use a lot of transoral approaches now compared to, what, 20, 30 years ago, where we go use the or- a natural orifice to get to the tumor and can resect it with good fu- relatively good functional outcome. Whether that's using a transoral approach or using a robot, um, this has really changed the, um, uh, changed the paradigm for a lot of patients. In addition, our re- reconstructive approaches <clears throat> have really significantly advanced the functional outcomes for patients. So functional advances are, are one, op- uh, uh, one thing that we've really accomplished well. But fundamentally, since I was a resident back in the late 90s, the same oncologic philosophy has been present. That is, we cut the tumor out to the same, to get a negative margin, and then we do something else afterwards. So the question is, in the current era of targeted and immunotherapeutics, how can we intensify or alter the treatment for these patients? And that's sort of how I've been thinking about it. And how how have I done that? And so our laboratory and my colleagues have have used both basic and translational approaches, which I'll talk about today. So the talk includes uh, work on, uh, mouse modeling, which I'll talk a little bit about, um, and how we've really focused on immunocompetent mouse models. Um, we've also generated patient-derived xenografts, so these are avatars of patients' uh, tumors. Uh, and also we've done novel clinical trials in, in the surgical setting in HPV-negative patients. And finally, we've used translational approaches in patient, with patient samples to try to understand what we're what we're doing or intervening with. <clears throat> so the outline for today's talk is is shown here. I'll talk first about our Mouse oral cancer model that I developed we call it the mock model, or so you know, just using the first uh, letters here, mouse oral carcinoma. I'll talk about some targeted approaches we've taken, which is targeted therapeutic, and the neoadjuvant approach. And, I'll, and then I'll talk about immunotherapeutic approaches in the latter half of the talk. <laughs> <clears throat> so this is our uh, mouse model of head and neck cancer. So I did my training in a fundamental immunology laboratory where we worked on carcinogen-induced models. We really thought about immunocompetent models of disease. Uh, again, with study immunotherapy, uh, immunotherapy approaches, you need to have syngenic models which we can study uh, the immune system and then look at the effects on the tumor. So, uh, DMBA is a carcinogen. It's been used for decades in head and neck cancer. There used to be a, what was called a hamster cheek pouch model of the oral cancers from the 1950s and 60s. A group in Chicago adapted this to mouse, mouse models. And so, we had used DMBA in a cutaneous cancer model and uh, so we tried to uh, use that and apply that to mouse models. And so starting in 2007 or so we started thinking about primary carcinogenesis. So this is a, a picture of some mice, so get ready for this. <clears throat> so this is a mouse that uh, developed a mouse oral cancer because of carcinogen application. So we took mice that were wild type, so they had intact immune systems, gave them carcinogen and they <clears throat> developed these moderately differentiated squamous cell carcinomas. So for those of you who don't know histology, this is a very classic picture of what we see in patients. With These keratin pearls, these tumors make keratin because they're, they, they're skin lining, and they um, have these uh, uh, epithelioid cells that are transformed and are the actual cancer. We found that this model was very difficult to work with because it just took months to develop and was hard to kind of uh, repetitively do, so we made these cell lines from these tumors. So we took primary mouse tumors and made cell lines out of them to be able to study in the laboratory. And we call this the mock cell line model or the mouse oral cancer model. This is supposed to show you keratin staining in these cell lines that we developed. Then you can take these cell lines, manipulate them in the laboratory. You can actually put them back into mice. They grow and they, some of them metastasize. So it's a really nice model that is a, that's tractable for laboratory efforts. And we've used this uh, uh, as, as sort of a workhorse for our laboratory efforts. So this model is very consistent with what we've seen in patients. Um, <clears> there <throat> are significant parallels to human disease the biology including metastases is very novel you can put these into the mouth or the flank and they metastasize to lymph nodes exactly like you see in patients <clears throat> we sequenced them so we did whole exome sequencing on these tumors we've mapped them trans- from a transcriptomic level and they look a lot like what you see in human head and neck cancer they, they have all the mutations that you see in patients um, and uh, uh, tra- from a transcriptomic level they also look similar they're syngeneic models, as I mentioned. They allow studies in immunocompetent settings, so you can study immune, immune immunotherapy uh, responses to these tumors. Uh, for head and neck cancer, they're the field's only existing models, so we've shared them with many different labs, and we send them almost weekly to different labs across the country and the world uh, to, uh, for, 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 for these studies. So um, how have we then used these models to study uh, HPV-negative disease, the, the clinical question that I, I brought up. So, the first thing we did was we, uh, when we first started developing these models, we thought about targeted small molecule therapeutics. So, as opposed to immunotherapeutics, these targets typically target intracellular pathways that are activated in cancer cells that may be promoting aggressive behavior. So, um, how do we do about, go about this? So, uh, again, as I said, the laboratory model has sort of informed our therapeutic approaches. So, in our mouse model, we identified this signaling pathway, the MEK-ERK pathway, which is a common node. Using a lot of signaling pathways, and we identified a drug that targeted that pathway. Well, we didn't identify the drug, but it was a well-known drug, and we thought, how can we apply it to head and neck cancer? And specifically, we, thought, we started thinking about using it in the oral cancer uh, setting where uh, biopsies and monitoring are, are very easy to do. That's one of the great things about head and neck cancer as a uh, translational model. It's relatively easy to access the tumor and monitor, so it's a really... <clears throat> wonderful uh, sort of clinical setting to look at these window of opportunity settings, which are called, which I'll talk about in a second. So we then uh, uh, thought about the clinical setting and then uh, did a phase two clinical trial with this drug called Tremitinib, which targets this pathway. And then we take the patient samples and go back to the laboratory and study the patient samples again to understand what we're doing with, by using this drug. So we're, this this type of approach actually informs not only the clinical um, clinical sort of outcomes, but also what we're doing from a laboratory standpoint. So here's sort of the basis of it, and I won't go through all these details. This was published several years ago. In our mouse model, we identified that our very aggressive cell lines had upregulation of this pathway for for whatever reason um, in in these tumors. And um, we found that targeting that pathway made these cell lines less aggressive, et cetera, et cetera. So that was true in the mouse. So uh, collaborating with my colleague, uh, Dr. Peter Fars and my close friend, John, John Sun Wu, was at Stanford. We looked at patient samples, and um, we also found that in patient samples, these CD44 positive or tumor-initiating cell populations seem to have um, uh, high levels of this, this, this pathway also. So just using this sort of preliminary understanding that this pathway may be present in, in more aggressive cell lines, uh, I thought about how can we integrate this into a surgical setting. So Um, The approach that we've really settled on over the last few years is this neoadjuvant approach. So for those of you who don't know, neoadjuvant approaches are are used as a therapeutic approach in in patient treating, for example, breast cancer patients and other tumors. It's really drug delivery prior to surgery. So usually we will see a patient and there's a few weeks before surgery, you can take them to surgery. During that window, you can give them a drug before they go to surgery and you can potentially extend that window also, go for more than a couple weeks type thing. Uh, These approaches... Ideally, you don't want to alter their surgical treatment, especially in the definitive setting. Like, I can treat an oral cancer and cure it by just cutting it out. So if we're trying to study something, we want to be careful that the drug doesn't have side effects, or especially with surgical approaches, it doesn't affect hemostasis or post-op wound healing. It also can be a discovery approach where you can look to see what the drug is doing and look in the tumor. Uh, and ultimately, it may be a therapeutic approach where you can reduce the tumor size before surgery. Uh, we talk about radiation or chemotherapy, but this is that same idea. And maybe it'll reduce the need for post-operative chemotherapy and radiation. Again, these are sort of hypothetical, but this is a, something that we think about should be explored. So here's a trial that we wrote. So this is with my colleague Doug Atkins, who's a medical oncologist. Uh, I'm a big believer in the multidisciplinary approach for all cancer management, and in particular with head and neck cancer. It's a complex patient, so working with my medical oncology colleague, we wrote this trial. So we looked at patients at WashU when I was there uh, who were surgically resectable. So these are medium to large-sized tumors that, were, that we knew we were going to take to surgery. So if the patient consented to the trial, we would get a biopsy, and we would get a staging PET CT scan, which is all standard. Uh, and the biopsy acted as the patient's own control. Then the patient would get the drug, and they would get it for two weeks, where we'd monitor to make sure they don't have side effects. And this is the pill. It's a small pill. They took it once a day in the morning. And really had minimal side effects. And then we'd watch them for two weeks. They'd get a repeat PET CT scan. And then you would have surgery by me or my colleagues. And then we get more tissue here. So the idea here is a patient serves as their own control. So it's a nice experiment. You can look at their CT scans pre and post drug. You can compare the biopsies pre and post drug. Um, we did a small trial with 20 patients. It took a couple years. And this we was, was our first sort of entree into this kind of approach. So we just wanted to look to see, can we target that pathway? Can we hit that ERK pathway that we were talking about that this drug would affect? And then we were secondarily wanted to look at clinical responses. Would we affect any clinical outcomes? And we did see that um, in some patients, not all patients, that the drug had an impact on this pathway. So here's a a patient, number one, whose tumor at baseline has a strong phosphor-ERK staining, which is this brown staining in these tumor islands that you see. But two weeks later, that same patient's biopsy all that brown staining is gone because the drug is working, basically. So this is expected, but we didn't see that in every patient, so that even though the pathway was activated in a lot of patients, you weren't necessarily hitting the target. So uh, of the 20 or so patients, these are the evaluable patients. A group of them responded to the drug with decrease of, the, of its phosphoric, and a group of them didn't respond. That was nice to see, but like, what does it really mean from a, a clinical uh, therapeutic standpoint? This is where we were actually surprised. We didn't think this drug would do anything. We were just doing this to kind of get our clinical trial set up and to see if we could identify patients who would, be, who would respond to the drug. But we actually saw clinical responses. So here's a patient with a flora mouth tumor, and it's a locally advanced disease. So he looked like he had a T2N2B disease, which means that he had lymph nodes that were, looked like they had cancer in them based on imaging and clinical exam. So again, we got a biopsy. We got a PET scan and then he got drugged for two weeks, and then at surgery, actually his tumor looked smaller. It was about half the size, and when we cut it out, the tumor was half what we expected, and there were no lymph nodes involved, which was a bit surprising. So we actually saw this in a few patients. Here's a different patient. Here's a a tongue cancer, which is, again, about a T2 tumor, which is kind of this ulcerative, ugly-looking thing, and he got drugged for two weeks, and it became this sort of uh, little um, uh, crater like this. So we actually started seeing clinical responses, which were unex- unexpected also. Um, so uh, the key thing is not every patient had this. So part of the big question in the sort of initial type of trial is, what can you do to understand which patient would respond or not respond? So we had biopsies from all these patients. So we did what um, was the simplest thing to do, which is we did whole exome sequencing. We sequenced all these patients' tumors to look to see if there are any pathways or mutations that would select for patients' Uh, who may respond to this drug or not. And so, this is the 20 different patients we sequenced. They look like the typical head neck cancer patients, like that TCGA data I mentioned, with the P53 mutations, et cetera, but not, none of them, except one patient who actually was non evaluable for the trial, had any mutations which suggested that um, why, this, the, why this drug would work. So, we were kind of sit, sitting thinking, you know, how we study this further. So, we go back to this patient samples, and can we do laboratory studies of this patient? So here's the, one of the trial patients, again, that same patient one, who had a, a this is a PET scan on a patient with large floor-of-mouth cancer, so it's a very locally advanced disease, and he got drugged for two weeks. After two weeks, his tumor size on clinical exam dropped by about a quarter, and on his PET scan, as you can see here, there was significant decreased uptake in the PET scan, so uh, at least by FDG avidity, which is uh, sugar uptake, there was less sugar going into the tumor. Uh, and at surgical pathology, again, the tumor was smaller than we expected. So the question is, if we had the same patient and we could treat him for not two weeks, but four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, what would happen? Would we really shrink the tumor a lot more? And ultimately, that's what we want to try to find out. And then again, what in this tumor's underlying biology was causing him to respond like this? So how do we test this? We turn to this idea of using patient-specific avatars or xenographs. So PDXs, as many of you may know, are patient-derived xenografts. So the way you do it is you take a patient's tumor and you stick it into an immunodeficient mouse. And when you do that, a certain percentage of mice engraft the tumor, and those tumors end up looking like the parental tumor. And you can then use the mouse as the model for the patient. So we did this at WashU, and what we did in this sort of separate study is we took 118 patients with different biopsies and generated xenografts from them. We made about 60 different xenografts, and we had about a 50% success rate, which is what people describe. And we've, uh, from this clinical trial, about half the biopsies, because we have a baseline biopsy and a post-treatment biopsy, engrafted. And then we've actually done a study where we've done sequencing of the patient's baseline or the patient's tumor and the, the mouse xenograft. And that, that paper is in submission right now. But it looks like the the, the patients, the mouse tumors look like the patient's tumors, not surprisingly. So what we did for this one patient is we took his tumor and we treat it, in a, uh, treat it in the mouse to see what would happen. And what you see is if you treat uh, with controlled drug, the tumors just grow out as you'd expect in the mice. But it, if you give this drug called trametinib, the tumor basically goes away. But not surprisingly, with targeted therapeutics, the tumors eventually escape after a few, a, couple, a, couple, a few weeks. This is a well-known phenomenon in targeted therapeutics. Tumors are very smart. They develop resistance mechanisms and escape. So what we're doing now is to try to understand in this patient with this sample, what is the underlying genetics of this, and what's the, what's the genetics of resistance? So why did he respond in the first place, and why is it escaping? And will that inform potentially potentially um, how we can think about future trials if we can identify truly patients who will respond uh, with these type of approaches? So that's just one approach we've taken. The, really the, 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 what's taken oncology by storm is everybody knows is immunotherapeutic approaches, and so I'll give a little bracket, background about that and talk to, uh, use the rest of the talk to, um, to go over the, what we've done with immunotherapeutic approaches, both in our mouse models and using this uh, surgical paradigm that I've just talked about. So uh, for those of you who don't know, um, the beginnings of modern immunotherapy really were in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and Dr. William Coley who's a, um, a surgeon at the Memorial Hospital, the New York hospital, uh, was really the father of sort of modern immunotherapy. Uh, so he uh, was really fascinated with this idea that infection cures cancer. He'd heard various stories that infection cures cancer. So what he would do in an um, IRB non-approved method would be he, he grew up strep erysipelas, I believe, and he made cocktails of this bacteria, and he would inject patients' tumors directly with these, with these uh bacterial toxins. And he supposedly treated 1,000 patients with this or more, and he published his uh, work in the Annals of Surgery. So Dr. Coley is actually one of the f- uh, 12 founding members of the AACR. So for, for those of you uh, uh, who are interested in some of that history, it's really interesting. Um, so he had these dramatic successes, supposedly, but uh, um, uh, Dr. Ewing, who is a pathologist of famed Ewing's sarcoma, was a radi- he believed in radiation. So the radiation guys basically stopped him from doing this work, and radiation became sort of the um, easier way to treat patients in the 1930s or so. So his work, um, and so just before I go on, uh, here's a, his, one of his first, his first patient, Mr. Zola, supposedly. So I think it's a Hungarian immigrant. He apparently had a tonsil on a throat cancer with this kind of thing, and he got injected with this uh, mixture of Coley's toxins, and he repeated the injections for about five months, according to his documentation. And apparently this tumor completely disappeared, and the patient lived for another eight years and had a recurrent tumor at that point. So this is sort of the earliest evidence of immunotherapy action, and it highlights actually some of the uh, work that's ongoing now. People have rediscovered that innate immune uh, activation is a potential therapeutic approach for these patients. Uh, his daughter, Helen coley Knox, actually rediscovered this, uh, all this, uh, his work, and uh, knew about it, actually, and has uh, helped found the Cancer Research Institute, CRI, which is one of the world's leading uh, immunotherapy organizations based out of New York City, um, and has led sort of the reinvigoration of this. So, and many of you also know this, but the question is, why is immunotherapy back? And so there's really landmark studies, both in the preclinical setting and the clinical setting, uh, showing that immunotherapy has just dramatic effects, in how, uh, in the treatment of many different types of cancers. And as you, many of you know, uh, the FDA has approved multiple agents for different disease types, including head and neck cancers over the last five years. And it's really this, this type of just, uh, crazy curves that are showing up that are what's, what's got a lot of people excited. This is, uh, melanoma. Uh, for those of you who've treated melanoma, you know that, five, ten years ago, five, ten years ago, if you had a patient with metastatic melanoma, they would die. That was just a given. And they got this uh, chemotherapeutic decarbazine, and this is the kind of curves you would see. Within a year, the vast majority of patients would be dead. You give this drug called nivolumab, and this is the survival you get, 70 to 80%. This is, you saw those chemotherapy curves I showed earlier. This is game-changing. Those are not necessarily game-changing, in my, from my opinion. But this is what's changed things. And it's not just that you see these things as opposed to targeted therapeutics. You get what's called the, 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 the long tail of immunotherapy, which is this durable responses that you get. You don't get resistance as much. Actually, that's, that's not totally true, but you, you um, are seeing less, of, less escape tumors coming out. So this is what's really changed things. And the fundamental basis of this is this idea that we all have T cells and tumor cells, and the T cell gets somehow activated to kill the tumor. So these checkpoint therapeutics or immunotherapeutics are really antibodies that target these respo- these negative uh, um, negative regulators of T-cell responses that inc- allow the T-cells then to kill the tumors. So these negative regulators are like breaks on our T-cells. Again, for those of you who already know this, I apologize, but uh, it, the, you basically are taking the break off, the, uh, taking the break off and put, letting the uh, accelerator go on where the T-cell then recognizes the, t- the tumor, through this MHC-T cell receptor interaction that then kills the tumor. So the fundamental basis of this, these responses, are leveraging this T cell activation and killing the tumor. And what is critical here is this little round blob here. So what is that round blob? Those are really the, uh, the, the molecules regulate non-cell from self-recognition. Uh, immunotherapy, immunotherapeutics are um, successful because there's something different about the tumor that the T cells are seeing. And so the question is, what is different about the tumor? We already talked about genomics. We talked about genomics in the standpoint that you sequence a tumor and you find something in the tumor that's, that's druggable. So this is one way of thinking about it, The mutations are drug targets, that uh, tumors depend on this mutation, and you target it, and then it, it kills a tumor, or it escapes because cancer figures out how to be, beat that pathway. But immunotherapy flips this a little bit and makes you think about it in a different way. And what, what, immu- what immunotherapy does is, or or, or the way I think about it is is that, and many people obviously are, is that mutations are actually antigens. So these mutations in the cancer cell confer this, um, uh, confer the uh, foreignness to the cancer cell. That mutant peptide that is made is then seen by the immune system as foreign, and that function doesn't matter. So it doesn't mean that it's druggable or not. It's just the the sequence of the peptide that's recognized by the MHC MHC and the T cell then allows killing. So if you have a mutant peptide that's foreign, in your cancer cell, you'll be recognized and potentially be able to be killed. And that's where checkpoint therapies work. So uh, where are we in head and neck cancer? So nivolumab, the BMS drug, and pembrolizumab, the uh, Merck drug, have been approved based on a couple of trials in highly treatment-resistant disease. Uh, These are patients with multiply-treated head and neck cancers. And unfortunately, the response rates are not like that melanoma slide I showed you. These patients don't do as well, but a small proportion of them do respond. Uh, and uh, the Phase three data does support a survival benefit of NEVO versus chemotherapy, and patients who express the pdl one marker on their tumor cells, which I won't get into the biology of, tend to respond better. Um, and in head and neck cancer, and you're not supposed to be able to read this, there's, this is just to illustrate how many different trials are ongoing right now in head and neck cancer with different immunotherapeutics. So this is the nivolumab with multiple different single-agent or combination trials, uh, pembrolizumab here, and other agents here. So these drugs have, are, are here to stay, and they are going to form the centerpiece of all therapeutics going forward. So then how do we think about it in head and neck cancer from, a, uh, from our, our, the perspective that I presented so far? So we talked about the, uh, this model that we've used here. So the question is, if you take our mouse models, how, what, how do they look like when we give them immunotherapeutics? So here's what we did. We took our, our mock models. So we have different cell lines that we've developed, not just one, and we have here I'm going to show you three different cell lines that we made, and we give we put them into mice just like like a patient would have a tumor, and then we give them this anti-PD1 antibody, and in one one model that we have that's very responsive, if you don't if you give a control antibody, the mouse gets the gets the tumor and just it continues to grow and the mice eventually die, but we see complete rejection in this model, so you, you there's no escape, so this is a very nice model of immunotherapy response. We have a second model where the majority of the time the tumors reject. The controlled antibody, antibody-treated mice grow out, but occasionally, about one in five mice, you get this blue line. The tumors escape. And if you harvest these tumors in this model called Mach 1 and you put them back into mice, they will now are completely resistant to anti-PD-1, exactly like you see in patients. And then we have a third model, which is completely resistant. It doesn't respond no matter what you do. It grows very aggressively. It metastasizes, and the mice die. And so this antibody doesn't do anything. So we've developed a platform in our laboratory to look at these different approaches, and we're not interrogating what the basis of these different responses are. So one of the things I mentioned to you is that something's foreign about these tumors that's being recognized by the immune system, in this case in mice. But how do you study that? So one of the things we've done in the laboratory is think about what's called neoantigen identification. What are the antigens in the tumor cells that are being recognized? So what you can do is you can use RNA sequ- exo and RNA sequencing, uh, and uh, predict peptides, they may be high affinity um, uh, ligands for the uh, MAC-TCR interaction, and you can grow out T-cells from these tumors, and you can do the a laboratory assay to confirm that your prediction, your in silico prediction is actually valid. And when we do that, this is an in silico prediction for that Mach 22 model. We identify that there's a whole bunch of peptides that may be good targets for immunotherapeutics. And here is, uh, is, is data showing that one of the predicted peptides that we predicted to be high affinity for this interaction actually has T-cells in the tumor, and I won't go through this data here, T-cells in the tumor are consistent with that. So we can actually do this in our mouse models also, which is being done in humans, uh, human and other models also. So this is some separate work we're doing also. So going back to this idea of how do we take this laboratory findings and, and uh, thinking about it in, in, in patients, we then thought about how do we do the, use these approaches in, in patients. And so... Uh, again, thinking about the surgical model, I thought about looking at locally advanced head and neck cancer. I started talking about how these are poor prognosis patients, and so uh, we thought about that setting again. And so I wrote a phase two clinical trial again with the same kind of approach as I talked about before, and then we're now studying laboratory-based T cell responses, the same sort of paradigm as before. So um, again, for the, today, as I mentioned, this neoadjuvant approach is you give this drug before surgery. Uh, there are many trials now. Ours was the first trial that we wrote in 2014, but there are many trials, and I really think this may be a new paradigm for how we treat head and neck cancer. And I'll show you data that I hopefully will convince you of that today. Um, and the important really questions are, again, is this safe to do? Uh, when Dr. Paterfart operates on a patient, we know it's, cured, it's a curative setting approach. If you introduce these things, is it safe? Uh, how do you define response rates? And that's a big uh, important question, especially when patients are getting multimodality therapy. And fundamentally, and what, what kind of correlative mechanistic studies can you do? So, uh, again, as I said, the rationale, there's the, we do need to make improvements in how we treat these patients. Uh, this approach may uh, start the immune response going to give a durable benefit before surgery. Uh, maybe it will shrink tumors. That's another potential rationale. And maybe it will reduce our need for post-operative adjuvant uh, therapy. So these are the kind of things we were thinking about before. So uh, there's preclinical evidence for this. Uh, there are mouse models where... You can give drug before, before you do a surgery on a mouse, and it, it gives you better responses. And we've actually shown it in our, in our mock cell line model. Um, just for the sake of time, I'm going to skip the next couple of slides, but a colleague of mine at the NIH and I've worked on this, and we've, we've seen that if in our tumor cell lines, if you give drug and you, you operate on the mouse, you take the tumor out before, the mice do better in terms of getting better T cell responses, et cetera. That's sort of unpublished work that's coming out. I'm going to skip that in the next couple of slides here, but basically the a bunch of mouse experiments. So. Okay, so that's the mouse data suggesting that this agent approach could work. So is there human data available? So, in fact, a paper was just published about two weeks ago in the New England Journal from the Hopkins and Memorial Sloan Kettering Group looking at nivolumab in resectable non-small cell lung cancer. So the non-small cell lung cancer is adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma, two different histologies, and which are, for the early stage disease, are treated with surgery up front. And so this group then took patients who had newly diagnosed resectable uh, uh, lung cancer. They screened them, and they gave gave them two doses of this drug called nivolumab, which is a BMS drug, and um, uh, then they did surgery on those patients uh, about uh, 28 days later. So they treated about 20 patients, and the results were pretty dramatic. And what they saw was that, first of all, uh, 16 out of 20 patients at the one-year time point, were without disease. But three patients did progress despite this therapy. And this, these numbers are intriguing, but it's still a little preliminary, obviously. But what they saw was major pathologic responses. So when, when they took the tumors out, about 40% of the patients had significant reduction in tumors in terms of uh, what, they, what viable tumor. So here's an example. So here's a patient who's on the CT scan baseline where it's post-treatment, you see some changes. But if you look in the tumor, uh, there was a baseline biopsy that was done. You look at the post-treatment biopsy at surgery, there's no tumor left. It's completely gone. Um, and here's another patient with the same kind of response. So their radiology did not correlate with this major pathologic response in their hands. So this is intriguing data, obviously. So um, not all patients had CRs, and in fact, the patients who had CRs were mostly adenocarcinomas, not the squamous cell carcinomas. It's an important point because we, we deal with squamous cell carcinomas. But they still saw these Pathologic responses. Um, so um, let's, getting back to the head and neck cancer setting, I mentioned that we had a 35% recurrence rate despite to using very aggressive surgery, well, actually very aggressive, but aggressive surgery chemotherapy and radiation. So the question, are we asked the question several years ago, if we had pembrolizumab to these approaches, would it improve their patient outcomes? So we took patients with locally advanced disease, again, HPV negative, P16 negative, and we had biopsies, gave them a single dose of drug, We did surgery on them a couple weeks later, got more biopsies, and then postoperatively, depending on what their pathology looked like, patients would get chemotherapy and radiation, and then if they were high risk, which is the ECE or positive margins I told you about earlier, they would get maintenance drug for another six months. So that was the trial, and we were really focused on this idea that these high-risk patients, the ones with poor outcomes, would benefit because we were doing this. We just threw this in there because this is a 2014 because we thought, Uh, it would be interesting to have laboratory sort of studies for baseline and post-treatment. And our endpoints were really to try to reduce this idea of going from 35% to 15%. That was what we said. We would try to take patients with high-risk disease, follow them for a year after they get pembrolizumab, and see if we could reduce their relapse rate to 15%. And secondarily, we wanted to look at safety and correlative endpoints. So before I get into our data, um, as I said, there's an expanding portfolio of these trials. So uh, ours was the first one. We started in 2014, but since that time, multiple groups using different agents. So this is Pembrolizumab, Nivolumab, Dervalumab. Um, this is OX40, different agent. There are many different neoadjuvant trials in, across the country in head and neck cancer. Uh, some of these have been reported. I presented the data I'm going to show you today at ASCO last year, uh, and some of these other data have been coming out now uh, showing the, uh, these, uh, these, these types of approaches. Not only are people doing this in the locally advanced setting, they're also doing it in the neoadjuvant setting. So Dana-Farber, we have three trials, including the neoadjuvant setting. Sorry, in the relapse setting. So patients who've had chemotherapy and radiation up front who failed, a lot of times we'll operate on them because it's called a salvage operation. That's usually their only option. There's no, not, They don't get anything else afterwards because they've already had chemotherapy and radiation. So in those patients, we're also doing this because it, they would, they could, this is a group that could really benefit from additional treatments. So... The first question is: It safe before surgery? So I mentioned all those other trials that are ongoing across the country in head and neck cancers. In fact, I do think it's safe. So with several different anti-PD1, PD-L1 agents, uh, there have really been no significant surgical delays uh, that, have, that have been reported so far with all these agents. Uh, the other question is timing. So this does this may delay surgery is, is the fear for a lot of surgeons. We typically try to get a patient to surgery within four weeks after we see them, uh, and because, but the, the exact time to time-to-treatment initiation question is still sort of uh, uh, out there. Um, but I, would, I always argue that we're not delaying surgery. We're actually treating them during that window. So something is going to happen there. So I, 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 don't, I wouldn't call this a delay in surgery. Um, so getting back to our trial, we opened it in 2015. Um, uh, uh, we've accrued 35, 36 patients so far, and I presented last summer, and I gave an update at the multi-D meeting in Arizona a, a couple months ago on this. Uh, so here's the data on this, of this trial, and I'll finish up with this in the next couple slides. Uh, we treated, uh, uh, this is a typical head and neck cancer population, mostly males, a lot of smoking and drinking, uh, mostly oral cavity, but other subsites also, uh, m- very advanced disease. So we picked sort of the worst, worst of the worst because uh, we knew that they would be higher risk patients. So here's the three key observations. Uh, safety. So first of all, there were, we had no safety, drug-related safe, uh, AEs before surgery. Uh, and no delays in surgery at all, and no intraoperative complications that were unexpected. Uh, so of the 35 patients we've treated so far, uh, 25 of them are evaluable at the one-year interval right now, and not a single one of them has had a relapse event. So again, it's a phase two study, it's small numbers, but that's a, that's I would think is a signal uh, that's intriguing because um, uh, we wouldn't expect this with these kind of locally advanced disease. You will, You should get a, a Percentage of those patients failing. And here's the, uh, again, from a pathologic response point, we see this very intriguing pathologic treatment response to a single dose of this drug. So when you give the drug, something is happening in the tumor. So here's a good example of this. So here's a patient who had a, he's an exceptional responder, so not every patient had this, had a buccal squamous cell cancer. This is FDG showing a bulky, uh, sorry, lymphadenopathy in the neck, CT scan showing bulky lymphadenopathy. So this patient will be staged T2N2B. Stage 4 disease, and um, I would almost guarantee you this patient would get, if you got surgery alone, we should get chemotherapy radiation afterwards because these kind of lymph nodes are just ugly-looking lymph nodes. The patient got a single dose of drug, so look at the date, the 27th of September 2016, and on October 14th, a little over two weeks later, he was left with nothing there almost. So it was a little patch of nothing, and on a CT scan, these lymph nodes had really shrank down uh, significantly. So this is interesting. What was really interesting, by the way, he still had the standard surgery he would have gotten. Uh, What was really interesting was the pathology. In the the cheek part, there was very little, there was what our pathologist called treatment effect, and there's a five millimeter piece of tumor left in there. And he had 67 lymph nodes taken out of both necks, and there was a bunch of dead tumor in there with no living tumor in the lymph nodes at all, with no viable tumor. So, and he should have gotten radiation at least, but the patient refused. And so, uh, because of his pathology, so this is the complicated thing about these doing, doing these kind of trials. But he's a CR, so he hasn't recurred at all after about 14, 15 months now. So here's what's dramatic: he went from stage 4A disease to stage one disease. So this is the potential of this. If you could do this and get away with this, it would significantly impact patient uh, outcomes, I think. So what is this treatment effect? So here's what you see. You see in the pathology of the tumor, here's viable tumor, but you see all this dead keratin debris and gi- these giant cells which are kind of cleaning up dead tumor. And our pathologists, we have uh, two outstanding pathologists who looked at all these slides kind of in a blinded, blinded from each other fashion, and they came up with a consensus reading. And what you see here, here's the 35 patients, and this is the data on the treatment effect in the primary tumor. Sometimes we'll take out the primary tumor and the lymph node separately, and uh, we saw treatment effects sometimes in the primary tumor alone, or the lymph nodes alone, and sometimes both. And I don't know the explanation for that, but we did see that. So I said about 40% of patients had some some sort of treatment effect in the tumor, and um, uh, about a quarter of them had more than 50% of the tumor dead in in, in the primary tumor of the lymph node. Other trials are also finding this now. So a couple of trials have also reported their data and are suggesting seeing the same kind of thing. So this is not the, we're not the only ones to see this. and so, what are the correlative studies we're doing? So, again, we can, we can really understand what's going on here. So, we're looking at PDL1 standing, which is a biomarker potentially of response. We're doing genomic studies on these patients also. Um, so, here's PDL1 staying. So, here's patient tumors. And PDL1 is a cell surface sort of uh, a cognate receptor for the PD1 uh, uh, inhibitory receptor that the antibodies are blocking. And you can see some patients have PDL1 on them and some don't. And interestingly, the treatment effect piece. Correlates, the treatment effect here correlates with the levels of pdl one on the tumors. So if they have pdl one it's a good biomarker that they may respond, um, which has been shown for other immunotherapeutics also. So we've done a lot of genomic analysis on these patients. So we've ma- done matched analyses of exome sequencing, RNA sequencing, T-cell receptor sequencing on these patients, so looking at mutation loads, uh, immune signatures, and T-cell receptor clonotypes. And uh, this is just one example of that where we're seeing that the mutation burdens in the tumors don't necessarily correlate with the treatment effect. So uh, this is something that's a little bit surprising, but uh, intriguing data. So just to conclude here, um, what we're seeing is uh, that there's really an expanding portfolio of these types of trials going on. There's clearly an early signal of this, that there may be something, that this may be an approach. And um, uh, I would caution everybody, including our own study, I'm excited about it, but uh, there are single-arm trials and there may be patient selection issues. Uh, so, but, but clearly there are strong implications that may alter current treatments. It, there may be a need for reduced post-operative chemotherapy and radiation. Uh, there's a potential to reduce the extent of surgery, and maybe a reduction in relapse risk. And these are all questions that need to be answered in, in really a controlled fashion. Um, so from a mechanistic standpoint, we're trying to study some of these also. Like, if you give a single dose of a drug, you're seeing these impacts. And really, what are the immunologic implications of that? How, how is that happening? Um, I do believe that there are other, there are many other immunotherapy targets coming up on the on the, uh, uh, in platforms right now, and this would be a great sort of paradigm to approach this. Uh, And I really do think it's time to do these kind of approaches in a phase three trial to really ask the question: Is this going to be beneficial to patients? Um, So I will conclude there, and these are my acknowledgments. Uh, I'd like to really, uh, I think patients and our families are what you really learn from. We, what I try to tell our residents and. Um, all our faculties, in everything we do, we should try to study our patients. That's why we are at academic medical centers. I've had a lot of funding support for all this work, um, uh, including in particular the NIH. Mm-hmm. Um, my lab, uh, both here and at WashU, uh, significant contributions from some colleagues at WashU and Dana-Farber, uh, genomic collaborators, uh, and other collaborators here. Thank you very much. You.
0: Yeah, Joe. When, for the resection part of these, these cases, are you defined, Are you going to your original margins? so like can you map that out yeah. ahead of time and say, okay, this, is worth, this, is, this was the exception of that
1: a Yeah. Resection. So uh, th- this is a great question. It's really about, from, from a management standpoint, if you give these drugs and it, the tumor looks smaller, what do you do at that point? Um, at this point, we don't know what the drug is doing, so there's lots of data with... In, the, in particular with chemotherapy, that if you give chemotherapy you can shrink tumors, but it may leave islands of tumor behind. That's at least sort of the um, folklore, but that's, 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 that's what Joe was really talking about. And how do you get the good margin on that? So bottom line is we stuck to the original margin. So we would document up front what the tumor looked like at baseline, and would always stick to those original margins. That was the idea. Yeah. Sure. I mean, to follow up with that, have you think about working at Looking at the yeah, that's 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 what really needs to be done, and I think our numbers are too small to really kind of ask that question in a definitive setting. So, um, yeah. Do
0: you, have in your mouse models, if you give a single dose, but you don't do lymph node uh, dissection, so you don't take those up, they respond
1: better or worse? Yeah, that's a great question. So we haven't done that kind of work yet. I mean, I think that. Um, the dependency on the lymph node for drainage, et cetera, is part of the question you're asking, and we just haven't done that yet. So, And so in the models that I've shown you don't metastasize to lymph nodes, but maybe that's that. from a presentation standpoint, the question is where is the antigen presentation happening, we just haven't done those studies yet. But, yeah,
0: go ahead. When you patient after do you see any difference like lymph node change, or has yeah. a surgeon how Yeah, it- yeah.
1: So this is, again, a good question. So what you do see not infrequently in these patients is you get a what's called a flare response. So the, with the immune cells coming into a tumor or the lymph nodes, it may get, look bigger sometimes. And so whenever we've done that in, in lymph node dissections, we've seen lots of patients with, not lots, but a decent number of patients with bigger lymph nodes. But whenever you take those out, there's not more tumor there. They're just bigger lymph nodes. So this so is like
0: the same experience from our thoracic surgeon. We do have immunosuppressant yeah. um, immunotherapy
1: treatment. Oh, well here, yeah. I mean, that's what I yeah. Yeah. So you'll see bigger lymph nodes, but it's not necessarily tumor spreading, basically. So, yeah. Do you know what happens to PDL1 expression after treatment, and does that recurrence? Yeah. So this is a great question. So I think with having matched samples like this, we can we can do that kind of, uh, those, those those kind of assays. We've just started looking at that. I don't know the data fully yet, so I, I can't ask that question. So all these studies that we've done so far with baseline samples. Uh, we have we have that data. I just haven't looked at it very carefully yet. So we did it on like 12 patients so far. So that's the other thing we want to finish the that, 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 that studies. So, but I think the implication of that would be is that if you have an immune response and interferon gamma is made at the tumor site, that should upregulate your PDL one in the tumor. So maybe you will see P, higher PDL one levels potentially if you're having an active response. That would be one thing that I, I, I thought about that too. It's a very intriguing question. So, but I don't have the answer yet. And, uh, in your responders and non-responders, do you see any difference in the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes? I mean, yes. To... Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, there's more, more in the patients who have the treatment effect. There's more inflammatory in lymphocytes. Yeah. Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you.